I'm Rick Kleffel, and you're listening to Writing 101 from the Agony Column podcast, featuring conversations with writers about the craft of writing. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website, trashotroncom agony. Lori R. King is the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Game, and The Art of Detection. Her latest novel is Touchstone. Her forthcoming novel is The Language of Bees. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you. Lori, I wanted to talk to you about the process of revision. Can you tell me, has that process changed for you in, in since you started writing novels? Well, I suppose that with, what is it, 18 novels, there's been 18 different experiences, so <laughs> none, none alike. Um, I would guess that I probably spend less time, less actual weeks in revision now than I would have at the beginning. I think that I'm a little more efficient, not a whole lot maybe, but a bit more efficient with, with my writing um, the first draft, because I know where it's going. Um, Do you outline? No, no, no. I, I think that, I think that you're either born an outliner or you're not. And some of us just don't have that gene. I can, I can try outlining, and it lasts for the first three scenes, and <laughs> and then I say, now, now, what did I have in mind here? I really can't think. Um, to, yeah, to me, outlining is is. Um, is just doesn't make any sense. I don't know how I can visualize a book without having the book written. I was always one of those kids in school that wrote a paper and then did the outline and handed in the outline and then handed in the paper that I'd already written because I couldn't see how it would go together otherwise. Now, have you always written on a computer? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Do you write? Come on now. I've been writing since... (laughs) The late eighties. I mean, some some of us were, you know, there at the very beginning. But no, I didn't write on a computer. Um, the first seven books, I think, um, I wrote entirely with uh, in longhand, with a fountain pen. Wow. Um, which is actually a a very comfortable process because I mean, physically comfortable because it's not um, not demanding. If if you're writing with a pencil i suppose or a ballpoint pen you your hand gets tired but with a with a good fountain pen you can write for hours and hours and hours and there's no no exhaustion factor um but then a number of years ago i got a very small laptop and it it enabled me to just bypass the whole um thinking of it as a typewriter process i i can now think of it as just an extension of of writing so how do you know when you've finished a first draft? <laughs> I get to the end. Come on. <laughs> um, I normally have a scene that I'm working towards. I don't usually write it down unless there's some key um, element that I'm afraid I might forget. But generally speaking, I I know where I'm working towards. The interesting thing is sometimes, um, in fact, usually, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get to that scene. So that for a while I was keeping a writing journal because I found that I would get in this complete panic mode when I had maybe 130 pages on on the first draft. And I 
could see where the book was going to get to the end and figured I could do that in 30 pages. And I, I would just get in this awful panic because I'd think, I can't turn in a first draft that's under 200 pages because typescript, you know, by the time you put it in book, that's a novella. And so I would I would get on this horrible panic and then I'd just keep writing and pretty soon I'd find that, no, there, there was considerably more than 30 more pages. So I would have a a first draft of, oh, I suppose 300 pages was fairly standard. Um, I'm writing larger books now, and my first drafts tend to run more than 300. They're more like 350 or 4. But um, I, I underwrite a lot. Um, a lot of a lot of times you'll see writing instruction and, and beginner's books saying that the rewrite process is a matter of stripping down all the superfluous material. If I did that, I would have a short story. <laughs> really? Um, I Yeah, I tend to... My first draft tends to be an expanded outline. It's uh, it is the outline that I would write if I were writing outlines, and doesn't have an awful lot of description and character development and um, subplots. They're fairly perfunctory, but I will make notes as I'm going on um, of areas that I may want to develop, so that the first draft is, as I say, maybe 300 pages. My final draft will be between 4 and 450. Um, as I say, now I'm doing longer ones. The one I'm working on now, the first draft was 304 pages, I think. And the manuscript I just gave my editor has 516, I think. Wow, that's a lot so, of underwriting. Yeah, it was... Well, part of it was that there were two whole sections of material that were freestanding, as it were, um, quotes from, um, it, this has a section, because it's called The Language of Bees, it has some quotes from, uh, I'm sure you know that Sherlock Holmes wrote a book on beekeeping that appears in his um, in his final appearance chronologically in, in 1914, was at the edge of the First World War when he presents this German spy with a book that the German spy thinks is a code book, and it turns out to be called um, the, the Practical Art of Beekeeping um, by Sherlock Holmes. So so this book is much sought after, as you could imagine, among collectors, and, and I have a copy of this. So my original draft did not include that material. Um, it now has excerpts of that. So that was about you know, 20 pages there of stuff that I later put in. Maybe not 20, maybe 15. And there's another section in it of um, of a theological work that is written by one of the characters in the book that um, I put in. I am currently in the process of a final rewrite. I swear to God it's a final, final rewrite. <laughs> um, because the, I, gave, I gave the finished... Um, the, the finished version to my editor a couple of weeks ago, and she's just got back to me to say, it's fine, except this material um, tends to bog the plot down. So now it's a matter of figuring out how to present the material without making the reader say, I'm really sick of this. Part of the problem is that when I wrote it, I was hoping people would be sick of it because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's this very pompous... Um, 
self-centered theological work by a you know a man who thinks of himself as being just slightly less than divine. So you can imagine it's pretty bad. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's easy to write bad stuff and theologically. Um, and and so now I've got to go through and give the give the feel that you're reading this huge amount of really bad material without actually making you do it. So that that's my that's my final rewrite process there. When you've written a book, um, and, and you finish it. I, I presume that you gotta actually sit. Do you sit down and read it? And how long do you have to wait between the time you finish it and the time you read it as a separate whole for the first time? Ideally, um, I like to have it go really cold in my head between the first draft and um, the rewrite. Um, very seldom do I get my wishes for an ideal world, but. When I was when I was first starting, I would write a first draft in the fall. I would start it as soon as the kids went to school in September or August and try to finish it before they came off for Christmas vacation so that over December, um, I would completely forget everything I had said in the book so that when I picked it up again in January, it would be new material, fresh material, and I could see what I was doing, what I was trying to do, and where I hadn't managed to do that. Um, but in in practice, that doesn't happen an awful lot. I normally have more problems having breaks and um, fitting writing and real life in together. So um, now with this one, I actually did manage to get, I got the first draft off to her in uh, in April, and then did a certain amount of rewrite in, during May, but I was gone for an entire month in June. And when I came back the end of June, yes, it was completely gone in my head. And so when I was when I picked it up afresh, it was new. It was it was not something that I was looking at words that I thought I already knew, because it was you know I'd come across entire scenes that I had forgotten writing and thought, oh yes, I that not bad (laughs) so um so i've been yes so this is now october almost um and so july august and september full-time um for the rewrite which is about usual for me i usually do maybe a first draft takes me maybe four or five months and the rewrite takes me usually four or five as well now, this is interesting, this process you mentioned of, of underwriting. I don't think I've ever, ever talked to anybody who does that. Could you explain maybe a, a little bit further in detail about underwriting? And then what happens when you come to these places where you left a place marker for yourself, essentially do this? Do you sometimes just go, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah, I usually try and leave a little more complete note than that so that I don't baffle myself too much. Um, but as I said, if you think of the first draft as being an outline, an expanded outline. What it's doing is getting to the end. It is giving me the bones of the story and proving to me that I will get there, that there is a story there. The rewrite is the process of giving that story something other than just a plot line. It's the subplots that add texture and dimension to the characters. Um, It is all the background material that I didn't really have time to think out thoroughly 
If I were a, a book every two years person, I would be able to pause and look at, um, for example, there's a lot of material on the Bohemian artists in the early 20th century um, in this book. And so I had to read a lot about, you know, Augustus John and all the others who were in, in the English art scene during the 20s. Um, if I had paused at the time that I came to those sections to do it, um, it would have taken me a lot longer to get through my first draft. But because I wrote the first draft with only sort of outlines of their lives um, and then had to go back and look at them, when I went back to look, I knew precisely what I wanted. I didn't have to spend three or four months reading all kinds of different biographies because I knew precisely what I needed and just went looking for it. Makes life simpler. Do, do the research after you've written the thing, I say. <laughs> That's really interesting. So you do your research while you're revising, and that's, that's again, that seems kind of unusual to me. I do, I do research in two, two levels. Um, I do the beginning research that is very general and gives me a flavor of the time and place, um, an idea of the kinds of people that I want to, to work into it, the sorts of interests of my characters. And then as, I, as I'm writing, I will keep notes of um, things that I don't know and have to go find out about um, so that when I go back at the end of the first draft, I'll have two or three pages of um, questions to myself. What was the forensic um, level at, at this time? Could, you know, could they check for this in blood? Um, who, who was painting what then? Um, what playwrights were around? You know, all those sorts of things that it's not worth stopping a plot to, to look into, but you have to, you have to work that in at some point. And, um, and there's a lot of not so much research as um, working on subplots, too, because until I have my main plot line, which if you're an outliner, you know from the beginning where it's going and how it's going to get there. Um, but I have to write my first draft before I can find where the main direction of activity is. And then I can figure out um, what, kinds of subplots feed into that. What this minor subplot, for example, the book is, is called The Language of Bees, and bees enter into it to some extent. But I wasn't sure until I finished the book in what way. Um, I mean, The Language of Bees is general enough that you can sort of work in a reference here or there, and it, it then makes sense to the reader. But to have it have dimension and have it... Um, so that when you see the title, The Language of Bees, after that, you say, oh, yeah, that's what that meant. Um, that's the sort of thing I'm working on in the rewrite. Could you talk about the character work you do in the, the rewrite? You, you talked about fleshing out the characters. Do you go back and write scenes that don't end up in the book just to get to know the characters? No, 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 no. I, I know a lot of people do that. A lot of writers will keep um, character notebooks, and I, I can't be bothered with that. I think that, too, is something that um, if you are working off of an outline, you need to know the kind of thing these people are going to do if it's not in there. Whereas when I'm writing, 
I am ex- I'm feeling my way into the character as I'm putting them on the page. Um, and quite often that means that I will change someone, that uh, someone I will have a very rough idea of, a very sketchy idea of at the beginning, um, I will then realize the depth of their personality and go back and rewrite the early scenes with an eye towards that. So that, for example, in this book, I, without giving any of the plot away, um, there's a, a person who comes to Holmes and Russell um, who has a fairly large chip on his shoulder when you first meet him. And that chip developed slowly as I realized that he wouldn't just enter into their their family relationship um, in a in a positive and friendly manner. He would he would come in um, with a certain amount of antagonism, and so that took some developing. When I realized that, I had to then go back and and shift him from being you know a warm puppy dog to being somebody who you wouldn't really turn your back on because you couldn't be sure how he felt. Um, so that's that's part of it. But there's also things like, for example, my uh, my editor, I gave her the first draft, which, as I said, was 300 and some pages. And she said that she felt the need for a personal threat somewhere in the middle of it that Mary Russell, who is the narrator of the books, um, the the danger and threat and um, excitement was always slightly to one side of her. And she, she felt that perhaps to have some kind of personal threat um, would wake up the reader in the, you know, the dreaded middle of the book where you're dealing with just getting the, the story told. So I... I thought about how to do this um, because, of course, if you're if you're doing that, you don't want to just have some stranger jump out of the the woodwork with a gun and then disappear. I mean, that that kind of doesn't really help matters any. Um, so I I rewrote um, about two thirds of the way through. Um, I inserted a scene where she goes after um, a person. And ends up in this house, and you know, there's a personal threat there. The problem is that it then introduces this whole new person and a whole <laughs> a whole change in the latter third of the book. So it's sort of at a certain point with that, that kind of thing, you, you feel a little bit like those. Uh, have you ever seen those those television programs of the? The, the world's strongest man competitions where you have these enormous men, usually Finnish or Norwegian, who strap themselves to things like, um, you know, a tractor or a, or an airplane. And they, they they're strapped and they're pushing themselves to move this huge, huge weight. And that's kind of how you feel at this point in the book is because the book is sh- shooting off in one direction and you need it to go in a different direction and you need to take the entire momentum of the plot and and put it slightly at an angle and so you're heaving everything sideways and it's it's an interesting experience <laughs> without cuz you you don't want to just tear up the entire last half of the book cuz there's a lot of stuff in there that you know can be reworked and resaved and it's great stuff and but this just all changed because you have this one scene in there now. 
When, when you uh, give your editor a first draft, what does her feedback look like? I mean, is it a page? Is it Does she give you a marked-up manuscript? No, no. The line edit doesn't come until um, the, the final stages. Um, <clears throat> we usually have a phone conversation. Um, I will send her, and it's, it's really interesting because she's this born and bred New Yorker type and, and is completely different from me, a third-generation Californian. And yet when we look at a manuscript, we have an amazing ability to read each other's minds so that when I send her a manuscript in whatever draft, I will send her a cover letter and say, <clears throat> this is what I think the thing needs. Um, and if you agree, I will, I will concentrate on that in the next draft. And quite often, she she won't read my cover letter until after she's read the thing and made her own notes. And quite often, her notes will be the same as mine. Um, so that when when I've given her a first draft and she's read my cover letter, she normally will respond with an email saying, yes, no, no, yes, maybe. Um, and at some point, we will have a phone conversation and talk about the shape of the book and where it needs to go. And... I, I mean, some writers work very closely with their editors. Um, some have a very adversarial relationship with their editors. I I get along very well with my editor, and um, she trusts me enough that when she's given me her feedback, I then just go away. And the fact that she doesn't hear from me for another four months doesn't worry her. You know, she, she's she's not concerned I'm falling off the edge of the world or anything. <laughs> How much of the original language from the first draft survives, and, and how much new original language and prose finishing do you do in that final draft, or the, the revision? I don't think there's more than one or two lines in the whole thing that don't have some change in them. Um, I, I am a compulsive rereader. Um, when I do my... When I, when I do my read before the second draft, I, I try to do it aloud because it's really tough to read your own prose just on the page. And if you have to actually hear it, um, you catch things you don't otherwise. Um, <clears throat> I have this very strange habit of using a word three or four times on top of each other. It's a terrible habit, and I don't know why why it is it's something to do with the the sort of state of my mind as i'm in a, a first draft but i will use you know for example there was the word heavy um four times in a paragraph which is just absurd you i mean it just looks really really bad and and yet if i'm just <clears throat> reading through i don't really see it if i'm reading it aloud my mouth says to me, um, are you sure you want to say this word one more time? So I will, it's partly, so it's partly like that, that I'm going through, um, for, for specific word use. And, um, it's the, the rewrite is the time when I'm very dependent on a thesaurus, not using words that I don't know, but to allow me to think about the texture of what I want to say in that particular, uh, paragraph. Do I do I want this short sharp word, or do I want something a little longer and Latinate? 
Um, and being Mary Russell, she writes very ornately in a way that um, a straightforward American English novel would not be natural in. <clears throat> so so I'm, I'm doing all of those things at once and also looking at the plot development. Is there, is there an area where I have um, someone doing something that is dependent on a fact that's given after that, in which case I have to then go back and <laughs> put it in earlier. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, reading it aloud, I, I have found pretty necessary. You used a term, and I think I've heard some other people talk about this, but I want to ask you about it. Um, the shape of a book. Describe the shape of a first draft as opposed to the shape of a final draft. And what do you envision those shape changes in in that manner? Well, the my first drafts are a mess. I, I I mean, literally, I would not give them to anyone but my editor that I've worked with for years and years now, because they they have no shape. They are um, they're just a mishmash of stuff. There's plot lines that just don't develop. There's other plot lines that start midway through. As I've thought, oh, this will be cool to work this in. So let's assume that I have done so. <laughs> you know, there's, there's character changes. Um, I mean, just all kinds of little notes that saying, um, "Develop this," <laughs> <laughs> or 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 material to come, or you know, just ridiculous. Nobody nobody could make sense of it except someone like like Kate who reads between the lines, um, or the author herself. Um, so that the the book in a first draft is um, is as I say, it's a series of notes glued around an outline. Mm. Um, but in the process of writing it, I'm not only writing the plot, but I'm also writing my way into what are the ideas that I'm working in with this with this book. Um, what are my main concerns? Is it um, Holmes's inner life? Is it uh, Russell's inner inner life? Is it um, you know a, a marriage between two people in Bohemia? I mean, what what is it that I'm really looking at deep down in this book? What is it that interests me the most? And with that in mind, I that I begin this the, the rewrite, the second draft, um, only when I have in mind where I want this book to go. And until I've written the first draft, I don't know that. Feedback when you finished your that big second revision, which that sounds like the time when I think almost as much, if not more, writing gets done in your revision than does in your first draft in some ways, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not. I mean, it's not always as extreme as this particular book um, to go from three to five hundred pages. Normally, it's more like I add a hundred pages. But um, yeah, yeah. It's when it's finished, it's then a novel that somebody could make sense of. <laughs> <laughs> do you when you're in the midst of this second this first revision are you also at that time also leaving parts that you think you might have to revise a third time oh yeah there's always stuff that I come across that that have to do with um with research and getting you know outside knowledge so that with this one I it wasn't until I'd come towards the end of the second draft that I thought, okay, now I know the questions I need to ask the B people um, and the questions that I need to ask airplane people because there's scenes about, you know, a 1924 airplane trip. So I, I find it difficult to, um, 
to push myself and my questions on on experts without background to start, you know, without having done my homework. I don't want to just go and say, oh, uh, tell, tell me what you know, because <laughs> it really doesn't help anyone. So until I've done some background reading and until I have um, the kinds of questions that, um, that lead to positive answers instead of just sort of vague feeling around in the dark, um, I, I won't bother most people. Um, but the, the, the way that um, the editorial process goes is that I can give my editor, in effect, the final draft, even though I know that there will be a couple of chapters that I'm going to be changing some material in. I try not to change too much because it really makes a, a difficult time for the copy editor. But, for example, with the B stuff, there's m mostly in one chapter um, where uh, Russell is trying to figure out why this particular hive has died. And Holmes, of course, has disappeared, as he always does. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she's forced to do it on her own. Um, but the, the material in that, because it is fairly discreet to that chapter... Um, it, it doesn't really matter so much that I don't have it nailed down um, when I give her the final draft. And could you talk about the, the copy edit, the line edit at the very end? Yeah. When when Kate has, um, has decided that the book is in good enough state, um, she will go through it and do a line-by-line -line edit. She will make specific queries and changes and... Occasionally, she sort of compulsively corrects spelling and that kind of stuff, but that's not her job. She just does that because the pencil's in her hand. Um, and that is her final, very close edit. She then gives it to the, um, the copy editor, and the copy editor uses a different colored pencil so that I can tell the difference between who's making what remark. And the copy editor's job is to do everything else to make that book um, polished. She changes my periods to commas and commas to periods. She checks to make sure that when um, I have people speaking in English English, they are using English terms. Um, she checks my chronology, which I always get screwed up on, um, try, as I, try as I might, and, and goes through it very closely for, for all sorts of things like um, do I have two people whose names look similar on a page? Because it's very distracting to the reader to try and remember that I've got a Boyce and a Boyle. And that takes her, oh, about three weeks. Um, so that when I send it off the final time, in about five or six weeks, I tend to get it back again with 80,000 pencil remark <laughs> remarks on it. And... Um, these little stick-on, they're, they're kind of like permanent post-its that you can rip off. They're little, a little uh, section of paper with a glue-on back that folds over. And anything that she queries, that the copy editor queries, um, she will write on there rather than write on the, on the typescript, which is getting a little crowded by now. Um, she will write on there saying, I thought you said her name was something or other, or on page 24, this character has blue eyes, um, all those sorts of things. And so that when I get it back, it's this massive thing with it's about half an inch higher on the right than it is on the left because of all these bits of paper that are glued to it. And I go through it um, the first time in despair thinking, oh, 
I'm just such a terrible writer. I just can't do my job. Um, and leave about half of the things undone. And then bit by bit go through them and decide, well, it's really not quite as bad as that. And uh, um, So I will go through and um, quite often I will stet. Um, if I don't agree with the copy editor's changes, I will stet. And um, I don't have any any compunction about doing that. If my editor has queried something, I, I hesitate before I stead it. Um, I have to have a real reason to do that because, you know, that's, you don't want to argue with your editor unless it's a point. And that takes me a good solid two or three weeks to, to work my way through that. Um, and I then return it, this much worked upon manuscript, and it goes off to the, to the uh, typesetters. And I honestly can't tell you how a typesetter makes any sense out of that manuscript because it's got, you know, penciled in remarks, it's got lines out, it's got, um, you know, my change of words. Every line, every line is different. I can't imagine how a typesetter can do their job without going utterly insane. Boy, that sounds challenging. <laughs> it, it is a mess. It is a real mess. And the fascinating thing is that even in this um, electronic age, it's all done on that original manuscript. Wow. That's, so, that's very interesting. Yep. We've been talking with Lori King about her new book, The Language of Bees, and about the revision process. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you. I'm Rick Kleffel, and you're listening to Writing 101 from the Agony Column podcast, featuring conversations with writers about the craft of writing. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website, trashotroncom agony. Thank you.